Hello, I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I am not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. This week, we're doing part two of what turned out to be a three-part series on Lana Turner and the murder of her boyfriend, Johnny Stampanato, at the hands of Lana's 14-year-old daughter, Cheryl Crane. I did too much reading, so I had to make this thing three parts. And if you don't like it, go hit the bricks. <laughs> we will be releasing part three of this saga today on Patreon, so there's that. Yes. We're both a little punchy. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're getting through it, baby. I did two episodes in what normally takes me many more days, so grumpy grump. Okay, great. Well, Muriel might be grumpy, but I am filled with love because we have the most amazing listeners in the world. We want to thank each and every one of you that share this podcast with the people in your life. A big love goes out to Zora for bringing Samantha and Samantha's cousin into the Muriel's Murders universe. You all are shining stars. If you find yourself loving an episode, most podcast apps have a share button. And if you share an episode by texting it to someone who you think would be into it, you are literally making our dreams come true thank you so much <laughs> okay well before we get started i also want to remind our audience the uh-huh. main source material for this episode or this series of episodes uh-huh. is the excellent 1988 book detour a hollywood story by cheryl crane and jar cliff it's an awesome book see muriel's doing her due diligence just another reason why muriel's murders should be the number one true crime podcast in the world okay okay, okay. this is a <laughs> True story involving murder, violence, drugs, adult themes, etc. So if any listeners are like Nick and they don't want to hear about those kind of things, please just listen to a different podcast. And if anyone hates joking and hates cursing, go watch an old school Lana Turner movie because they used to censor all that stuff out of those movies. Yeah, no humor, no swears. <laughs> Even in the comedies. Okay. All right, Nikki, are you ready to hear this story? No. Okay, let's get started. Started. Well, I'm pretty sure we agreed that I would do a recap of part one, but then I somehow conveniently remembered that uh, we decided I wasn't going to do the recap, <laughs> so I didn't do a recap. That's fine. <laughs> it's pretty straightforward, guys. Yeah. Lana Turner had a wild, wild, wild life yes. to get to where she was. And we're going to pick up at the end of that episode yeah. in 1943 with the birth of Lana Turner's only child and author of our source material, Miss mm-hmm. Cheryl Crane. That's right. A murderer turned true crime writer. Let's get into it. Let's do it. So Lana Turner and Steve Crane had remarried. Remember, they mm-hmm. had married. Steve was accidentally already married. Then <laughs> Lana got pregnant. So then they got married again. Yes. Right. And they welcomed their bouncing baby girl. And then the couple lasted for about an entire year before Lana filed for divorce again. Good. <laughs> I don't know. I think that's good, right? Yeah, I mean, do what you want to do. Yeah. Nobody should stay married if you don't want to be married. You know? Obviously, that is true, but I was also alluding to the fact that Mr. Crane was a little bit of a, like a loser. 
<laughs> I mean, you know, she's Lana Turner. You'll you'll warm up to him over time. Yes. I think he did some kind of cool stuff. But right now, he's just a young guy casting about, doing his thing, trying to find his footing, kind of broke, mm-hmm. dating Lana Turner, not <laughs> able to hold on to it. Yeah. So we're going to talk about him for a second. Okay, good. So at first, Steve Crane used the press coverage of the divorce to try and make a case you know, Lana works too much to be a decent mother. Mm. And like he himself is just a simple boy from Indiana seeking full custody. So he's uh-huh. really like, I want to get full custody of my daughter or whatever. He's in the press. Sure. But soon that morphed and Steve instead took this brief moment in the spotlight to dabble in a little bit of acting <laughs> and get a little sloppy. Okay. <laughs> Hey, we've all been there. I, I relate know. to that. Hey, let's do some art. Oh, I'm a mess. When let's I was do it. that age, yeah. like for sure, I got to say, <laughs> I'm like, oh, regret that. All right. <laughs> so in the fall of 1944, yes, a little bit, I think their divorce was in the works or was finalized within the month or something like that. But uh-huh. in the fall of 1944, Steve Crane was at a swanky party on the Beverly Hills estate of actress Anne Rutherford. She did a lot of stuff, big time at the time. Uh-huh. I've never seen any of her movies. Yeah, so I can't say the them. name rings a bell. <laughs> so Lana swept into the party on the arm of her new boyfriend, actor Turhan Bey. So Bey was the son of a diplomat from Turkey, very handsome, and his fans called him the Turkish delight. <laughs> How could you not? No. So Lana walked in sporting a diamond and ruby ring that originally was a Crane family heirloom. Uh Uh-huh. Crane sees the ring on Lana's finger, sees Bay on her arms. He walks over and demands the ring back in front of a ghast A-list partygoers. It's so scandalous. Oh no. Then he challenged her on Bay to a fist fight in the garden. So the fight was brief. Yeah. You get his ass beat. Bay punched Steve Crane in the face, <laughs> but Steve got some scratches in. Okay. Scratched Bay on the forehead. Uh huh. And disgusted Lana threw the ring in the shrubbery. <laughs> oh, man. So the night ended this is awesome. with Lana storming out of the party and Steve digging through Anne Rutherford's bushes. <laughs> You're having the time of your life. It's so Look great. at you. I mean, this book is so awesome yeah. because it's from Cheryl's perspective. And she was there and like, you know, able to talk to her mom and all that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. But also what I like to do when I'm doing these types of stories yeah. is I also have um, my like newspaper archive tab open. Uh-huh. So if there's something that seems like too insane to be true or like, wow, that's so, I want to know more. Uh-huh. You can just go in and plug in the dates of the names of the people who are involved in the year and right. the place, right? Yeah. And then it'll pop up with all these articles. This one in particular was so brutal. <laughs> Why? What were the angles? Just because Steve Crane got dogs. <laughs> you were just like, they were just like, he got punched in the face. Like, just the scandal. Uh, it was just very, and he was in, I mean, they were in papers like yeah. for, I don't know, two weeks. Loser Crane gets smashed in the fight with the Turkish delight. <laughs> nice. Uh, okay. So before the year is up, Steve decided, okay, Miss Lana Turner, 
too can play at this game. And he used the remains of his star clout to sign with Columbia Pictures as an actor. Mm-hmm. So Steve did a couple B-movies about werewolves and stuff. And then he landed a bit part in a picture with Miss Rita Hayworth. The okay. Big, gorgeous Rita Hayworth. Yes. Called Tonight and Every Night that was nominated for two Academy Awards. He was briefly romantically linked at the time to Rita Hayworth and also Ava Gardner. What? But, yeah. He was like kind of using. I mean, is he, he so hot? How does this happen? He's not that hot. I think I, I find him attractive, but I don't. He's the least hot of most of Lana's lovers, I think. Okay. So I think the least hot guy who's still attractive is usually the guy who ends up. I mean, that's like Pete Davidson or whatever. Right? I know. He kind of looks like Pete Davidson. He has this kind of like boyish hangdog look his pouty lips oh and man like, those freaking a-list movie star ladies love passing dudes like that around <laughs> that's a puff puff pass man so he is kind of living on life on the high horse right uh-huh. he's doing some stuff but unfortunately for steve that was all pretty short-lived according to cheryl her dad was fired abruptly from columbia pictures after he slept with a polish ballerina who was dating the president of columbia pictures at the time harry Cohn. so he's sleeping with the boss's girlfriend too <laughs> this guy knows no bounds but he's <laughs> amazing what a king he got his contract canceled right yeah But yeah, you know, he's a king. It's all good. (laughs) Eventually, Lana won full custody of Mm -hmm. Cheryl and Stephen bowed out of that fight for the time being, focusing instead on the thing that would eventually make him a millionaire. Restaurants and specifically tiki restaurants. Oh, yeah. It's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In 1946, Steve Crane opened his first Los Angeles hotspot, Lucy's New Orleans house. And meanwhile, as far as her parents were concerned, baby Cheryl was floating in the ether. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she was just out there somewhere. And the only family member actually doing any semblance of parenting of Cheryl was Lana's mom, Mildred. Yeah, Mildred's still in the game, She's huh? still in the game, and she'll be in the game for Is the whole Is she just story. loving her daughter's success? She has to be just loving life. There's a lot. I mean, there's you got to read the book because there's so much like stuff that goes back and forth. Yeah. I mean, I think that it was really great for a chunk of time, but uh-huh. also Lana is just such a monster. Is you know, she? Like, Is I mean, she? back in... She's not really a monster, but like, how, like, how could you not be... You know, with the, the way that the world unfolds and how it happens. Right. And everyone puts you on a pedestal and treats you like a god and like She whatever. can be like, according to this book, yeah. she can be like kind of a PIA. That's what my mom used to call me. What is that? Pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> and All like, right. you know, when she was, and she gets stressed. It's like a really high, we'll see, especially mm. in this, um, this part two of this episode. Yeah. There's just so much stress going on. I mean, like like the high highs and the low lows yeah. are so big. Uh, one thing we won't really talk about that much, but uh-huh. basically under stress, she snaps into being like incredibly theatrical. So like, <laughs> so like they'd watch her and she'd be like making these faces that she makes in the movies and yeah. like disgustingly like taking a moment to turn her head. And she's really like hyper focused on control and yeah, wearing sure. really tailored gowns of and never course. being out of place. You know, 
So she she gets that way until she can't do it anymore. I have one question, and it's a bit of a trivia question. If you don't know the answer, you get like literally a million passes. It doesn't matter. But so Stephen Crane is like, yeah, I want to be in a movie. He hooks up with the star of the movie, and then it gets all these Academy Awards. Has any of her movies gotten any Academy Awards? Lana? Yeah. Well, actually, uh. That's a spoiler, I guess. I okay, won't, we'll I get won't to say it that. Then. We'll get there. But I know the answer to that question. I'm I just, just not think gonna it's, tell you. The funny idea is that, you know, he's like, Well, I'll try it too. What, you think you're the only one who can do it? And then he just goes and his movie gets an Academy Award. I think he had like a walk on bit part, but yes, yeah. he wasn't like co starring with me. Hey, I did a voiceover part in Minari and that was up for Oscars, and I, I'm riding that one high. I'm not, you can't even see my face in it. You could barely hear my voice in it. I play like the news reporter and the wrestling announcer and stuff like that, but I'll take it. Yeah. You know? I were, think you cre- it counts. were you credited? I was a special thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, Cheryl's hanging out with Mildred, right? Mm-hmm. But like most Hollywood babies, Cheryl was actually raised by a series of expensive wet nurses, nannies, and governesses, which was normal for kids born to Hollywood actresses at the time. Mm -hmm. The one thing that deviated from the norm, however, was Lana's insistence that little Cheryl never be left alone. She had 24-hour supervision for years. Her nannies slept on a cot in her bedroom, so she was never allowed to not have eyes on her. Yeah. She wasn't allowed to close the bathroom door until she was nine years old. And by the time she was barely in her teens, Cheryl was banned from wearing any color outside the pastel family. She was required publicly to wear white gloves everywhere. And while she was half a foot taller than her mom by the time she was about 13 years old, she was referred to as baby or the baby until she was 40. (laughs) Are we going to unpack any of that or are we just leaving that? on the table to be looked at or are we going to dine on that feast of information you just gave us there's so i mean there's so much stuff like that's why this thing is three parts uh-huh. and so there's things i had to leave out essentially just remember uh-huh. if you want to this is a great way to think about it lana turner's signature walk according to lana turner is you know ramrod straight back and then imagine if you're holding a nickel between your butt cheeks and you have to hold it there. And if it falls out, you'll die. And that's how she walks across the room. That's how she teaches Cheryl to walk with good posture. And it's like... Uh, my that- butt is so flat, I couldn't do that. I would die. <laughs> if they were like, get this nickel in there, it would have to go in my butt. I have stop, no cheeks. Stop, stop. That would not work for me. All right, all right. So <laughs> the point being is that Lana is like buttoned down control. Yeah. And so if you wanted to imagine how Cheryl grew up in her childhood, it was like not allowed to play with friends, yeah. not allowed to play outside, not allowed to be alone. Um, a lot of the time she was in either private schools or tutoring. She was just very, very lonely, but mm-hmm. always coveted, like always surrounded by people taking care of her who were in charge. So this has to be some huge psychological backswing after the whole foster home thing and her insane upbringing. I mean, I don't even want to say insane. For a lot of people, that's normal. I don't mean to say insane. I just mean these are very different extremes. Yeah, right. And it resulted in Cheryl having to wear 
very young, like baby doll clothes until she was way too old. And she talked about being friends with Liza Minnelli and Liza Minnelli would like ride her bike around the neighborhood with a t-shirt, jeans and sneakers, which are things that that she was not allowed to. And she's just like looking through the window. She's literally could never wear sneakers, never wear jeans, never wear a t-shirt. She couldn't dress like that and she couldn't leave the house basically. Oh my God. God, and then she ends up stabbing this guy to death. That's that's like the first time she left the house. All right, I know. I'm getting out of myself. All right. Okay. So meanwhile, Uh while baby Cheryl is out in the ether being watched like a hawk 24 hours a day, Mm -hmm. Lana was trucking. By 1945, at the age of 24, she had already appeared in around 25 movies. And then between 1945 and 1947, her star continued to rise. She appeared in five films, including starring in The Postman Always Rings Twice, which ended up being a box office and critical smash hit and probably her most famous role. She also, uh, at that time, was super sassy and replaced the great Catherine Hepburn in Green Dolphin Street. That's how hot she was. Okay. And at this point, we start to see little glimpses of baby Cheryl in the press. Postman Always Rings Twice sported a pretty wild role for Lana. She played an affair-having femme fatale truck stop waitress. So MGM (laughs) wanted to see her like kind of in her real life as a doting mother. So they held lots of photo ops with Lana and Cheryl to kind of counteract the press she was getting from Postman. They even released Lana's 500 item Christmas list for her family that year. So they were like, look (laughs) how how much this domestic mama is buying her child. Can I wax poetic for a quick second? Sure. Okay. I think there's a lot of legitimate criticism on today's Hollywood landscape in terms of all the sequels that are being made and the prequels that are being made. And it's just Marvel movies and it's all this pre-existing IPs and now there's 12 star Wars things and 15 Jurassic parks and all this Uh stuff. And this is considered what you're speaking on is the golden age of Hollywood. But I'm just going to go ahead and make the argument that maybe someone else has already made that having 25 Lana Turner movies is kind of just the same thing recycled over and over and over again also, right? And then she's in the papers. You you pick up the papers. You see the thing. Oh, Lana Turner's in 12 movies this year. I'm just saying this romanticized version of how much better things used to be. I'm going to go ahead and say it's kind of always just been the same old shit. I, you know? lo- I love your hot takes. All I'll right. take them all the time. All I mean, right, I think there was diff- there were differences in things, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> you're not wrong. That is, that is a that is a fair rebuttal to uh, my incredibly hot take. Yeah, well, yeah. you know, I'm <laughs> also hot. Also hot. Let's really go. hot. We're firing on all the cylinders. Okay, so during this period of the golden age <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of cinema, Lana also got her romance on. She started an affair with Howard Hughes. Remember the guy was saying with the tissue box shoes? Right. Later in life, he succumbs entirely to his OCD and basically can't leave his house. But up until that point, he was out in the world being like an incredible pilot and making all these movies and financing all these movies and kind of just being like an absolute boss. Yeah, right. So she 
had an affair with him briefly. Then after Postman was released, she started a fairly public affair with then married with two kids, Frank Sinatra. (laughs) (laughs) To the point where like in the press, like his wife is throwing all his stuff out on the lawn and she's saying, you know, like it was a very, very publicized affair. Well, it's Frank Sinatra. He literally hooked up with every single woman. (laughs) Okay, well, it was significant because Lana Turner was so big at the time. Right. But yes, I I hear you. I'm just saying, she should have known. It's going to be in the papers. (laughs) I can't control you. Uh, She also hooked up. She had an affair with a different married actor, matinee idol Tyrone Power. Lana reportedly threw a $10,000 birthday batch for Power, which is like a bajillion dollars in today's Uh money, uh, right before he went away on a tour of Europe, which... Afterwards, he dogged Lana by divorcing his first wife and then just marrying someone completely different. (laughs) But Lana closed out 1947 as MGM's most popular star and one of the top 10 highest paid women in the U.S., earning $226,000 that year. So that's around $2.8 million in today's money. Mm Mm-hmm. 1948, however, was a little wonky. The newfangled invention of the home television set was exploding in popularity and already starting to rattle the movie business. Plus, Lana was pushing 30, and MGM started cutting down on the volume of films they were producing a year. So you know how you were saying, oh, 25 Lana Turner movies a year? They cut it about in half. Um, leading to MGM stars tightening their belts for the very first time at the Tiffany of Studios. Mm. It used to be, it was like feast and then famine a little bit. Right. Now, in late 1947, Lana was cast in The Three Musketeers. Big, big movie, mm-hmm. right? And she had started da- dating millionaire socialite Henry J. Bob Topping Jr., whose dad worked in steel and tobacco and whose brother owned the New York Yankees. And Bob just kind of did other stuff. Okay. <laughs> so Bob uh-huh. Topping proposed to Lana on New Year's Day, 1948, by dropping a 15-carat diamond engagement ring into her glass of champagne. And in case you're curious... That is a really big diamond. Like, mm-hmm. it's the same size as Kanye and Kim's engagement ring. Oh, damn. It's big. I mean, I'm assuming that's huge. Or A-Rod and J-Lo's engagement <laughs> ring. Uh, it's three carats bigger than the ring Prince William gave to Kate Middleton. So you're talking about like a rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that leads us into... <laughs> like breaks the champagne flute. <laughs> That leads us into the topping wedding disaster of 1948. Oh, no. Oh, no. Now, there wasn't a fire or anything like that. It was more a disaster of taste, a spectacle gone wrong, if you will. Uh So remember from episode one, Lana loved to elope. She had been married three times at this point, but had never had a formal wedding. And Lana loved a big press opportunity. Plus, as bright as her star was in 1947 in her big year, she wasn't getting any younger. And there were new actresses clawing through the ranks. A big wedding could keep the spotlight square on Lana's gorgeous blonde face just a little bit longer. Great. Yeah, just keep, right? that, keep that nickel just shoved in there. <laughs> So Billy Wilkerson, the founder of The Hollywood Reporter and the man who discovered Lana in the yeah, soda shop, right. uh, 
offered his palatial estate on Sunset Boulevard for the wedding. And also, just to add a little tidbit, uh-huh. Billy Wilkerson had been busy in the 1940s. I don't know if you know this. In 1946, he started outing people in Hollywood he believed to be communist sympathizers in columns that the community nicknamed Billy's List. Mm -hmm. And these columns initiated the Hollywood Blacklist. So he was really behind, basically, the start of the Hollywood Blacklist, which his son uh, apologized for in 2012. (laughs) Anyhow, on to the wedding. (laughs) (laughs) So for the wedding... MGM Studios themselves came in and stripped the entire Wilkerson estate down to the bones, all the furnishings and everything, and then completely redecorated it. They brought in 6,000 cut gladiolas and gardenias, which is a crap ton of flowers. Uh Uh, The plan was for an intimate afternoon wedding. The ceremony was held in the living room of the mansion with 12 attendees. And then the reception followed in the garden for 64 A-listers and family and 74 (laughs) members of the press. Oh, my God. (laughs) Unfortunately, from the Turner family perspective, the press turned on Lana, painting a less-than-flattering picture of an aging, single mom, clinging to love, nervous and desperate for her fourth marriage to work out, punctuating the story with unflattering photos of Lana, who had gained a few pounds and looked a little puffy, as well as four-year-old Cheryl, who spent most of the wedding scowling. Oh, man, that sucks. That's so mean. Well, you know, this is their perspective. I looked up the, like, press from her wedding. I yeah. couldn't find... She had... I guess there was this one big unflattering spread in Time Magazine that I just couldn't find. Uh-huh. But the photos... You know, she was really mad about the photos. They're not... They're kind of blown out and, like, at a really weird angle. Like, they're mm-hmm. kind of from really low yeah. in the ground. So it's like, you know, that kind of thing that makes you look like you have a double chin. If it's uh-huh. like that angle. And, you know, there was some awkward body poses that they chose for the spread. But it wasn't like, I thought she was, I think it's a little dramatic. Uh-huh. <laughs> sure. It just makes me think of all the celebrities that, you know, have like Annie Leibovitz or whatever, take the, their photos and it's like this, pe- they give People Magazine the inside access to I their- think that's what she thought she was getting right. and instead she got kind of like Grandpa Joe <laughs> taking photos from the side. You know, it wasn't like, it wasn't as glamorous as she thought it was. Yeah. Um, so the centerpiece, this is where- the description really got her, okay? Yeah. The centerpiece of the reception was an entirely over-the-top spread of opulent foods decorated and arranged in bizarre fashion. So there was a European countryside tableau made out of carved potatoes and then a wishing well made out of woven sliced carrots that was filled with water and actual live goldfish. And then that was all surrounded by rolling hills constructed from just straight up caviar. <laughs> oh my God. There was a ham yeah. embossed with the words, I love you. And a beef <laughs> roast embossed with the words, uh, she loves him. <laughs> There were several ice sculptures, including two lobsters encased in a block of ice that press were told represented Lana and Bob, quote, in the act of taking their pleasure. What does that mean? Having sex? I guess. 
<laughs> like, I honestly can't like even... <laughs> two shellfish <laughs> trapped in ice cubes and then there was of course like a big ice sculpture of Lana and Bob hugging that was rapidly melting of in the course. afternoon oh sun. no <laughs> just like her star power in this industry but uh, photographers shot baby Cheryl wandering around alone and sad with a horrible scowl on her face, which really I saw the picture. She's making a terrible face. <laughs> While uh, Grandma Mildred and Cheryl's nanny were just uh-huh. like off drinking champagne together. <laughs> and at one point, tight. like Cheryl wandered over and she wanted a slice of birthday cake. Uh-huh. And for one reason or another, Grandma Mildred was like, no, you can't have any sugar like at this wedding. <laughs> So Cheryl had a complete meltdown in front of all the press and Mildred dragged her screaming up the stairs and put her to bed in like the middle of the day. <laughs> I have a question. The, all the, the food sculptures and all this, was that MGM? Like, did they get an art department? You're saying they stripped this place bare mm-hmm. and then they built this whole thing and obviously that was created for this. I don't know the answer to this. that. I, I you think... don't know if Lana was like always loved food art or anything? I th- it screams to me of like nothing personal and something that they thought would wow photographers and it just went over the top into like absurdity. Yeah. That's how, that's what it seems like to me. I don't, oh, no. they weren't like, Oh, Lana design this herself. I guess it's sort of the equivalent. Cook. Right. Yeah. I guess it's the equivalent of today, like posting something on Instagram or Twitter or something that you think is really great. And then just getting made fun of really hard and going viral for people clowning on you. Just meaning like she's playing the game. She's saying, come here and worship me. And she's her whole angle is to like have this lift her up. Right. And exploit it. And then if you enter into that bargain and it goes sideways, I mean, I feel bad for her, but I guess that's a game she's playing. Yeah, she flew too close to the sun. Yeah. She got burnt. She melted like her ice sculpture. <laughs> at the ancient age of 30. So at some point during the reception, Bob and Lana get the feeling that people are not on their side. Uh-huh. And they kind of get tired. They sneak away. They go upstairs and they leave the press downstairs without any final goodbye photos of the couple driving away Uh so they waited upstairs for hours but reporters are like nah they stuck around eating all the weird hot caviar (laughs) not budging uh so when and then finally when bob and lana tried to make a run for it they ran downstairs they got in their car and started to drive away but they found someone had filled their hubcaps with old bolts so their car would make noise as it went away and they all ran out and took the photos anyway (laughs) that's fucked up (laughs) and there were bad times for stephen crane too in Mm. 1948 his first restaurant lucy's was going broke and his fiance got caught smoking weed and everyone lost their mind because this was like reefer madness times. Oh. So his fiance Lila, who Steve proposed to using the same ring Lana threw in the bushes, nice. was a starlet at Warner Brothers and her contract was canceled. Crane ended up leasing Lucy's to new operators, breaking things off with Lila and running off to live abroad in Europe until things blew over. And Lila spent 60 days in county jail where she got addicted to heroin. Oh, my God. Just a real wild fall. In the 70s, though, Lila actually became a faith healer for addicts. So she, you know, 
She had some sort of upswing. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I don't know what a faith healer, I'm not sure. Faith healer, yeah. <laughs> yeah you're, that's the term they use. They could just mean like spiritual healer or they could mean like, you know, I don't know if it's a snake thing. Or right. Whatever. It seems like potentially scam adjacent. Yeah. Yeah. Or scam head on. So with her dad in Europe and her mom on honeymoon with this millionaire, Cheryl was alone on lockdown with a nanny and later she wrote she was so lonely at this period of time that she developed an imaginary friend Mm -hmm. and she would just hang out with her imaginary friend all the time lana and bob finally came back to california and in between shooting the now delayed three musketeers lana threw cheryl this extravagant fifth birthday party in july so of course press filled event at the Riviera Country Club in Brentwood, where Cheryl took horseback riding lessons. Mm-hmm. So there was a famous TV clown. There was horse riding. Lana, uh, 1940s. <laughs> Lana even had a group of Native Americans from the Ute tribe crown Cheryl honorary princess of the tribe. Oh, my God. Not super ethical, but <laughs> Cheryl had a great time. <laughs> Uh, right after the birthday party, Bob, Lana, and Cheryl moved into a 24-room Bel Air mansion with a pool, tennis courts, kennels, a greenhouse, all on four acres of land yeah. with a staff of 10, really living it up. And uh, Lana and Bob named the property Mapletop. They would throw these grand parties with singing guests like Sammy Davis, Frank Sinatra, and Judy Garland. But... Pretty quickly after they moved into the mansion, Bob Topping was broke. He had lost uh-huh. most of his money on what is called American midget car racing, which I guess started in the 1930s. This is like a really dangerous sport that still exists. Okay. Today, it's racing a class of very tiny, very fast cars uh-huh. and have like a cage around them. And he was like, this is going to make me a billion dollars. And he just went broke. He went super broke after he blew the bulk of his money on racing some kind of car yeah bob lived off of his trust and lana ended up footing the bill for basically everything else so this was the beginning of a very rough period for lana the topping wedding and honeymoon had delayed the shooting for three musketeers and mgm was really super pissed and even though the film was a huge success After the movie was released, MGM temporarily suspended her contract in retaliation. Mm. Lana also discovered she was pregnant right after her suspension and then gave birth to a stillborn baby in 1949. In 1950, Steve Crane was in a terrible, terrible car wreck in Europe. Bob Topping called his stepdaughter down. He sat six-year-old Cheryl down at the kitchen table and showed her the article about her dad's crash, complete with the picture of the crumpled car, telling her, basically, your daddy's now dead, so you need to start calling me daddy now. And she just kind of digested that information. She's a child that, like, adults don't really talk to. She has her own compartmentalized world. Yeah. Uh, And then later that year, Cheryl was horrifically shocked when Grandma Mildred came upstairs to tell her that her dad was coming home from Europe for a visit. He wasn't dead, and no one even knew that Bob had said anything to Cheryl about the accident. She just thought her dad was dead for like three months. I know I'm not supposed to be 
I know I'm not supposed to be at a loss for words on a podcast. It's kind of my job to say something. But you just said like eight sentences in a row that I haven't a real haven't a, I'm grasping. Yeah. It's so, okay. You know, now Steve Crane was back in town uh-huh. and to Cheryl's, you know, delight, he had custody of her every other Sunday. So that started out with these big fancy dinners and clubs and then shifted to her tagging along to gambling parties at his house. But it was still pretty fun. <laughs> yeah, that sounds hella fun. That's got to be way better than what she was doing before. In 1951, Lana was 29 and had a series of flops at the box office. MGM was promoting new actresses like Elizabeth Taylor and cutting expensive contract players like Judy Garland and Clark Gable. Lana was facing bankruptcy. She had to let go most of the hired help at Mapletop and had to close down whole sections of the mansion to stay financially afloat. So for Cheryl, she just saw pieces of her world start to shut down. She became more and more kind of shut up in her room. That's so bizarre. Later that year, under the mounting pressure, Lana actually attempted suicide but Mm. was saved by her manager, Benton Cole. Then... Judy Garland, longtime friend of Lana's, and Liza Minnelli, her daughter, moved in next door, and the mother-daughter pairs had some much-needed friendship time, uh-huh. bonding over very similar things. Can I ask a question real quick? Was the press kind to Lana when she gave birth to her stillborn child? Yeah. Good. I mean, she got, I don't know, I guess as long as you don't mind things like that in the press... You yeah. know what I mean? This the stuff that I read seemed very I'm sorry for your loss, but it yeah. still splashed over right. every still, paper yeah. in the gossip column. Right. The early fifties were mostly a series of box office flops for Lana, with the exception of The Bad and the Beautiful with Kirk Douglas, that was a big hit. After the premiere of The Bad and the Beautiful in the late nineteen fifty two, Lana filed for divorce from Bob Topping just for gambling and totally not being a tight dude. Yeah. In 1953, fledgling superstar Marilyn Monroe released Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and How to Marry a Millionaire back-to-back in the same year. Game over. Audrey Hepburn had her very first starring role in Roman Holiday, for which she won an Academy Award for Best Actress. Game over. And Grace Kelly premiered in uh, Magambo, which is actually a movie set in South Africa that Lana Turner declined. She didn't do it. And it did really well. It was did very well, and it won Grace Kelly an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. And meanwhile, Lana Turner had turned 32, gone brunette, and her last two pictures had flopped. Mm. That year, she met and married actor Lex Barker, who played Tarzan in the franchise in the late 40s and early 50s. Now... This next part's pretty rough. Just heads up. Okay. While Lex Barker was never charged with any crime, in her book Detour, Cheryl Crane claims Lex Barker violently raped her for three years, starting when she was just 10 years old. Oh, my God. So unaware of what was happening to Cheryl, Lana continued making movies and had depressing box office numbers. And in 1956, MGM announced it wasn't renewing her contract. At the time of her contract termination, she had worked for MGM for 18 years and had earned MGM upwards of $50 million. So that's 
over half a billion dollars in today's money. Oh my God. After her contract was cut, Lana struggled to find work. Lex made B films and foreign movies overseas and was linked to other women. Lana fell pregnant again and had another miscarriage. Remember from the first episode, we talked about this blood Mm -hmm. disorder that she has. Right. So that is actually really common for people with that blood disorder, especially at the time. Yeah. And in 1957, according to Cheryl Crane, she finally told her mother about the sexual abuse and Lana kicked Lex Barker out and filed for divorce. Mm -hmm. Cheryl's dad, Steve, was actually in the hospital recovering from brain surgery when Cheryl came forward. He had a benign tumor, but also he had injected a bunch of gel under his scalp to try and stop hair loss. It was like a trick at MGM Studios. They had done that for him. And it had migrated and was giving him headaches, so he had to go in and like scrape all the gel out of his scalp. Oh my, wait. They were injecting headache juice into people's heads? To help them grow hair? Well, I don't think they knew that it was going to have headaches. What? You can't put a gel inside your head. That's that's so dumb. <laughs> it's underneath your skin. It's not in your brain. Still, that's so dumb. You What you do is you just, I don't know, shove nickels behind your ears and try to squeeze them back so the nickels don't fall out and your hair never lose. You never lose your hair. Ugh. So he's in the hospital yeah. getting this gel removed and this tumor removed and Lana and Cheryl visit him and tell him about the abuse. But... No one considered even going to the police. According to Cheryl, it just wasn't something people talked about back then. Mm-hmm. It was just accepted that her parents both knew, and now they were going to... What, kill him? Divorce him, kick him out of the house. I think Stephen Crane wanted to kill him, and they were just like, let's just not... We're just not going to ever talk okay. about this again. Yeah. The family was anti-psychiatry, so she didn't see a counselor or anything like that. And that was it. When they returned from visiting Steve Crane in the hospital, Cheryl was sent back to boarding school in Pasadena and Lana sold the mansion. She didn't have enough money to keep it. Mm. In the spring of 1957, 13-year-old Cheryl took a long weekend to Palm Springs with a friend, her mother, and her mother's 22-year-old male buddy. We'll say they weren't official. Yeah. Uh, he just was a tag along. Well, how old was Mildred at the time? She's probably like a super hot, like 52 or something. Yeah. Hell yeah. At the end. No, that was Lana's buddy. Not oh, Lana had the 22 year old. I <laughs> thought you were saying Mildred. I was like, yeah. At Good for end, Lana too. You know, shit. At the end of the trip, Cheryl claims Lana slapped her across the face for flirting with her male companion. Mm -hmm. She pulled her aside and accused her of trying to steal him away. And it had these undertones of like Lex Barker or some questions that were remaining for Lana. (sighs) Are we going, are we going to dive into that or no? I mean, we all know that's just like the worst thing in the world, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean you know what does Cheryl say about it does she she have a lot of anger with her mom about that incident like looking back is she she reflect on it and I think you know I think she by the time she wrote the book she Mm -hmm. was much older Mm -hmm. and she had a lot of time to reflect I mean I think it's just a hard what a terrible thing to do yeah and also like you know 
some sort of recognition for how messed up the whole thing was, you know, like that they, none of them got counseling and that like nobody ever, that's a big part of the family is like, you don't talk about it. You know, you hold everything in and don't talk about it. So there's lots of things about the family that like they never really processed until she was much, much older. And so it's kind of a recognition of that, the limitations of her mother and like the times, you know, she kind of recognizes that, but also she recognizes that it was a terrible, terrible thing that her mother did. Yeah, yeah. So she slaps her across the face and then she puts Cheryl in a taxi and, you know, prepays the taxi to take Cheryl back to boarding school. And in the taxi, Cheryl snapped. And when they entered a traffic jam in downtown L.A., she got out of the cab and just walked away. She was 13 years old. She ended up in Skid Row with no plan. And after being followed by a random man and then a group of teenagers, she ran into a coffee shop just to kind of get some safety, essentially. And she was approached by an older man. And she has no experience with the outside world. She's never done anything like this before. So she says, hey, man, I just have $12. Can you help me find a cheap hotel? So, oh no, the shady dude is like, yeah, definitely. I can do that. Get in my car. So she gets in his car and he drives her around for a while until it dawns on him that Cheryl is much younger and probably much richer than he initially thought. Uh-huh. Like, don't, it seems like this man was definitely a predator because uh-huh. he drove her around for a while. Yeah. But I think he realized he was in over his head in terms of who he had, you know, sought to victimize. So he ended up taking her to the Skid Row police station and dropping her off. Okay. At this point, Steve Crane and Lana Turner are putting pleas in the newspaper. Please return my daughter. We don't know where she is. Like all... Within hours. Yeah. The press is like generating like, you Mm. know, there's already stuff coming out about it. Yeah. And then... She gets to the police station and it's just like horror show. They find her in Skid Row. There's all these pictures of like Lana Turner crying and like them leading her out of the police station. And, you know, remember, Cheryl's only 13, but she's like 5'9". She looks Uh like she could be 20. So it's a very like, you know... Uh, odd juxtaposition when they say she's a runaway she looked like a little girl they'd be like oh Lana's terrible but you know this is the beginning of her reputation as being like a troublemaker well and not to mention she has about a four-year-old sense of the outside world yeah it's just you know she has a very arrested sense of how things work and it's just a recipe for disaster in a lot of ways right so after her face was splashed all over the papers the Sacred Heart boarding school kicked her out And Cheryl was enrolled in a public school to finish out the year. Four months later, Cheryl made the papers again. That summer, Cheryl went to a ranch in Colorado for a vacation, and the kid can't catch a break. On her 14th birthday in August, she broke the ranch's rules and went riding off the ranch unescorted on this huge golden palomino that was 17 hands tall, so like a very big horse uh, named King. (laughs) <laughs> so they're out in the, you know, pasture. Yeah. King sees a snake. He spooks and he throws Cheryl off his back and into a ravine. Oh, my God. So she falls into the ravine. She fractures several vertebrae, ends up in a body cast. And again, just four months later, her parents are like flying out to Colorado. 
with their sad faces in the picture, just being like, what are you doing? Oh my God. So this kid's being put through the ringer. Yeah. But that wasn't all that happened in 1957. Between revelations of Cheryl's horrific abuse at the hands of Lex Barker, another Lana Turner divorce, Steve Crane's brain tumor, 13-year-old Cheryl's runaway attempt in Skid Row, and then her drastic horse riding accident, Lana started up a secret relationship with a new guy and would end the year premiering a film that would earn Lana her first and only Academy Award nomination. Okay. So we're going to back up the clock a tiny bit. Sometime in the late spring or early summer of 1957, in between Cheryl's runaway attempt and being thrown into a ravine via horse, Cheryl was taken by her mother to a nearby horse stable. There, she was introduced by her mother to a man named John who had a horse. He seemed like a study in contrast, big, tan, broad shoulders, wearing Levi's and riding boots, but with the accents of slicked back hair and a diamond pinky ring. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm getting a certain certain vibe. It was hinted that John was basically there to give her a horse. And this is a great example of Cheryl's life, is uh-huh. that, you know, she just gets told what to do. She's shuffled into the mix. She's just uh-huh. like sent away and brought back and not spoken to. And it's like, hey, your dad's died. And yeah. No, he didn't. And, you know, she doesn't question a lot of that stuff. So she just shows up to a ranch and this guy's like, I'm going to give you a horse. And she's like, whatever. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Weirder things have happened. Right. So John owned a red Arabian mare named Rowena that Cheryl could ride in exchange for cleaning out her stall and grooming her. And it turned out this kind of weirdo guy, John, was an excellent writer. And even better, he was calm and steady and very careful and hands off with Cheryl, who was used to just kind of being when people tried to impress her mother that Uh were dating her, it was like she gets hugged and kind of thrown around and stuff. And this guy was very like respectful of her boundaries. Yeah. And also generous. He taught her how to improve her writing, which is already pretty good. And then pretty quickly, he offered her a part-time job in his gift shop. So John Stampinato owned a weird little place in Westwood called the Myrtlewood Gift Shop. And the shelves were mostly filled with cheap, oddly made ceramic pots and wood pieces labeled as art. Uh, Stampinato spent most of his time in the back room on the phone or quietly talking with other shady guys. (laughs) Labeled as art. That's the hardest way of saying it. He paid Cheryl 25 cents an hour Mm. to dust tchotchkes, answer the phones, and run to the post office to ship identical eight-inch square boxes of equal weight that didn't seem to contain anything sold in the shop. <laughs> okay, I have a question. Sorry, I'm loving this front for the mob. I mean, that's this is awesome, <laughs> labeled as art, as our whole life has been. But real quick, is John Stampanato presented as dating her mother at this point? Yeah, to okay. Cheryl, but this is like a very low-key thing. So Lana has people that she dates. Yeah. And then she has people that she dates that she doesn't say she's dating. They just appear. Uh Right. So like the 22 year old guy who came with them to Palm Springs. Uh He's in that camp. Right. He's not announced. He's not announced on any level. Okay. So after the Colorado horse incident, 
Lana decided once again that Cheryl needed a more controlled environment. And for some reason, I don't understand, she stuck John Stampanato, her male companion of just a few months, with the task of finding Cheryl a new school. <laughs> so Cheryl remembers at the time, riding around in Stampanato's Thunderbird convertible while he pitched her the idea of moving in with his own mother in Woodstock, Illinois, and to going to school there under a fake name. And even at 14, she just side-eyed him like, <laughs> you know, she was like, no, dude. What? <laughs> I'm not going to move in with your mom. <laughs> so Sampanato instead found Cheryl a boarding school in Ojai, California, about an hour outside of L.A. called Happy Valley. Beautiful. This was a progressive co-ed boarding school, really small classes, high academic standards, beautiful campus, mm -hmm. no TV, no Elvis. Oh. And while <laughs> Cheryl didn't want to be sent away again. Hold on time. Was that a legitimate rule? Yeah. Awesome. No rock and roll, yeah. People yeah. were not into Elvis. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they were really into Elvis, right. but some people were terrified of Elvis. Right. Uh, while Cheryl didn't want to be sent away again, it was close to home and it was a relatively good fit. So high five for John Stampanato. He found a good boarding school for Cheryl. Also, God bless his mother. She was like, yeah, send her out here. She'll give her a fake name. She'll be part of the family. Yeah. You know? She'll yeah. give her an Italian name. That's <laughs> awesome. So while Cheryl started the school year in Ojai, Lana flew to London to shoot Another Time, Another Place with 20-something future James Bond, Sean Connery. Mm. And John came along, but not on Lana's dime and not in any official capacity. He All was right. banned from set. Now, while she was out in London shooting, Lana's film Peyton Place premiered in L.A. in December of 1957 with 14-year-old Cheryl and Grandma Mildred in attendance. In the film... Lana played a long-suffering widow and mother of a wild child in a town full of oversexed teens, gossip, child abuse, and incestuous scandals. So a pretty rough watch for Cheryl at the time, mm, right? Yeah. We won't get too much into it, but this is like a very, like a inflection point for Cheryl watching her mother and this was her first time seeing her really on screen in oh, one of her really? movies. She was banned from seeing her mom's movies oh, and she was also banned from reading any trade magazines for up until this point. Yeah. Because she had such a cloistered life. Right? Oh my God. And they just sh sh shove her in front of this? Yeah. It's so like the trauma is just boiling over at this point? She watches it and it really shifts something inside her because uh -huh. a lot of you know the pain and the trauma that she went through with Lana, you know, she felt at least like that's her mom. And then she's watching her on screen doing the same disapproving faces and making the same choices and doing these things to this actress girl and just oh. realizing like, oh, this is what you do. Right. Like this she... isn't this isn't special to me. Right. Even though yeah. for me, it was really monumental. Yeah. It's her entire existence. Exactly. And she's just like, oh, what, you just do this with every little girl you meet. It was very, like, rough. So she's in this huh. very, I, I wouldn't say, like, nihilistic place, but a very dark place mm -hmm. when she's told she's going to fly to London for Christmas to spend the holiday with her mother and presumably John Stampanato, who's out in London. Mm -hmm. So Cheryl 
gets a first class ticket on a Pan Am flight mm-hmm. on the inaugural flight over the North Pole, the first one they've ever done from LA to London. Iconic. Yeah. At 14, Cheryl's tall, around 5'9", and she's dipping her toe into rebellion. She's pissed about Peyton Place. She's, you know... She's a lot to be pissed about. Yeah, And she's living in rich kid hell. With height and attitude, she passed for older, so she was able to knock herself out with a couple martinis. So she falls asleep in her sleeping bunk, Uh only to be jarred awake by the freezing cold. And she wakes up to find herself on a completely abandoned plane. No. They landed in the North Pole? (laughs) Turns out the plane had engine troubles and it was forced to make an emergency landing in Northern Canada. So everyone had been evacuated off the plane, but they forgot about Cheryl. They just left this girl? How many martinis did she have? (laughs) So when the flight attendants finally found her, they picked her up and they took her to this communal room in an old fueling station where the rest of the passengers were being held. Uh And that's when the blizzard hit. (laughs) They were stuck for 36 hours with pretty much nothing, no bads or anything, and nothing but gin. So Cheryl got hammered with the rest of the adults until Pan Am got things back up and running. Well, that sounds pretty good. Did she get? Did she have any horrible stories about being stuck there? No, she it was, was just good. like, "What a weird thing to happen after you go see Peyton Place." <laughs> yeah. I was in boarding school. I saw Peyton Place, and then I went and crashed in the North Pole. <laughs> and just drinking Bombay Sapphire in the snow. So when Cheryl finally arrived in London, she sees Lana, but there's no Johnny, and Lana just flippantly says, "You know." Johnny and I had a disagreement and we're no longer seeing each other. And like usual, Lana's not going to talk about anything unpleasant. So Cheryl decided, fine, we won't talk about Stompanato and I won't talk about stupid Peyton Place. Let's just have a good time. All right. Very mature. <laughs> yeah, we're just going to keep all of that tamp, 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 tamp down. So despite the weird not talking about things, Mother and daughter had a ball in London. It was the first time she'd ever had fun with her mother, who's incredibly controlling and, yeah. you know, kind of intense. So they went out together. They dined and like wined and dined themselves. They were even supposed to be presented to the queen, but that got canceled. But that was almost a thing that happened. Okay. And then after London, Lana flew to Alcapulco to reunite with Johnny Stampanato. They had reconciled. And she was going to take a vacation for a couple of months while Cheryl went home to boarding school. Mm-hmm. So a few months pass. And when Lana and Johnny Stampanato return from Mexico in March, the press meet them on the tarmac. It's just flashbulbs, all kinds of stuff, getting pictures of Lana and her new man. Mm-hmm. Stampanato is photographed alongside Lana and Cheryl, smiling broadly between mother and daughter. But Lana squashed any talk of a romance. She very publicly stated she and Stampanato were not together and they were absolutely just friends. She was quoted in several papers saying, quote, there definitely is no romantic interest here. So Cheryl recalled walking off the tarmac and piling into their car with her mother and grandmother while Stampanato got behind the wheel to drive them home. And there's this weird, heavy silence. This should be a time of celebration, 
Mm-hmm. Lana has been nominated for her role in Peyton Place. She's been nominated for an Academy Award. It's a huge deal. The first one ever in her career. And the ceremony is happening in like a week and a half or something like that. Mm-hmm. So Cheryl looks at her and she begs her mother to let her go. She says, please take me with you. I want to come with you to the Academy Awards. Mm-hmm. And Lana pointedly says yes. She invites Cheryl and she invites Grandma Mildred to the awards ceremony, but distinctly not Stompanato, who just stared ahead and said nothing as mm-hmm. they drove home. Mm-hmm. Well, he's being a good, silent, we're not in a romantic relationship boyfriend to a big time celebrity yeah you can definitely say that so march 26 1958 was lana's big night she was up for best actress for peyton place and she was also presenting Mm -hmm. so this is a new high point something that might save her declining career and win back like her top billing for different pictures yeah but the reality was she wasn't really favored to win. Yeah. Elizabeth Taylor was nominated in the same category. And then the really strong favorite was Joanne Woodward, who's Paul Newman's wife, uh-huh. who was nominated for The Three Faces of Eve. Mm. So Sweater Girl's odds were not great. <laughs> oh, Sweater Girl. She's, but God bless her. She's up, she's up on the world stage. Yeah. However, the theme of the 30th Academy Awards was old Hollywood. So mm-hmm. Lana was in her wheelhouse, you know? It was a good it was a good time. They were they were one of the last cars to arrive fashionably uh-huh. late at Hollywood and Vine, right ahead of Gregory Peck. Mm-hmm. All the Turner girls were decked out. Lana had a big diamond necklace from one of her ex-husbands and mm-hmm. she was in a skin-tight mermaid dress with slick back platinum blonde hair. Mm-hmm. 14-year-old Cheryl was wearing a bespoke green chiffon halter dress and a pair of spike heels she had to keep on her feet by curling her toes because they didn't have any backs or sides. Oh, God. All <laughs> and, that nickel training. And the tall, wobbly girl was topped off with a white ermine stole made out of one of her old childhood coats. Is that like a... Like a scarf thing? It's a fur. Like a stole. It's like a little yeah. cape. Like a little right. fur cape. Yeah. So the event was absolutely delightful. In her, like, they had all these wonderful things happening. In her television debut, 66-year-old Mae West saying, baby, it's cold outside mm-hmm. to Rock Hudson. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the awards, Jimmy Stewart was the person who introduced Lana uh, as a fellow presenter who yeah. was... A little more than nervous to be speaking to an audience of 50 million people via teleprompter. Uh But she did great. And then the presenter after her was Ronald Reagan, which at the the time he was like a Western movie star. Right. Uh, And then, you know, all of this great stuff happened. At the after party, Sean Connery sat at their table while A-listers came by to just pay respects to the Queen Lana Turner. It was a very sweet night. And despite its nine nominations, Peyton Place didn't take home a single prize. But it was a good night. I just want to say also, there are plenty of years when someone is nominated for something and they're not favored to win. And like, if you were to look back in the history books, you'd be like, oh yeah, that one wasn't even favored to win. And those are some of the best performances yeah. ever and yeah. some of the best movies ever and a lot of times the best movies and performances are never nominated so to be nominated but also not to be favored to me is you know it means she's not going to win but it doesn't mean that it was any less of a performance that's nice i like your heart 
So Lana was living in a two-bedroom suite at the Hotel Bel Air at the time and invited Cheryl to spend the night, which is really exciting for her, instead of going back home with her grandmother. Mm-hmm. So the pair uh, sipped on a bottle of champagne and walked barefoot to the suite. They took their heels off. <laughs> and to top off the great night, Lana told Cheryl that she had rented a home in Beverly Hills and she wanted Cheryl to move in there. So aside from living in her boarding school in Ojai, Cheryl had been living with her grandmother for years since Lana had sold Maple Top, the mm-hmm. big mansion. Yeah. And Cheryl was over the moon to finally move back in with her mother, you know, and have her own home base. Yeah. Mother and daughter retired to bed around 3 a.m. to their respective rooms when Cheryl heard her mother scream. There in Lana's dark bedroom was Johnny Stompanato. He had been waiting all night, and he was sitting there full of rage. (gasps) Furious about being excluded from Lana's Oscar celebrations, furious about things, other things that Cheryl didn't understand at the time. Uh So Cheryl just hid in her bedroom, waiting for the screaming and the slamming to stop. She could pick up tidbits of, whatever was happening, you know, you can't leave me, get out of my house, like that kind of stuff. But, you know, she just waited and hoped everything would would end. The next morning, Johnny Stampanato was gone and Lana came downstairs very late, covered in makeup and scarves and sunglasses. Mm. So she drives Cheryl to her dad's house so his chauffeur could drive her back to boarding school. And like she did in London... Lana pretended like nothing had happened. Yeah. But Cheryl was stuck with a question. Who was this guy? Like she'd never seen a bad side of Johnny Stampanato. They ride horses together. Right. He got her into a great boarding school. He's always kind to her. He got her a job. And she didn't understand this face of what was going on. Yeah. And I'm so sorry. You're saying that Lana's trying to cover up the fact that, you know, he hit her. And maybe beat her a lot, perhaps, based on the disguise you said she had. But Cheryl knew that. Cheryl wasn't just like, oh, they were screaming. And he, she... She can recognize uh that her mom is covering up for like a physical fight that they had the night before. And for the record, even though Lana had had these tumultuous relationships with different men... She had a really strict rule that there was no fighting in front of the baby. So Cheryl hadn't ever even witnessed her mother arguing with another man. It was like Mm. they came, she was in love, and Mm. then they were gone. It was just like how it happened in London. Oh, Johnny and I had a fight or a disagreement. Yeah. You know, he's not going to be here anymore. And it was just kind of ships passing in the night. So she had never actually witnessed some sort of argument with her mother and a man that was completely foreign to her. Mm. And again, it was shocking. You know, she thought she knew him. Who is this guy? Yeah. But surprise, there's a lot to learn about old Stampanato. <laughs> yeah. What's up with his art store, man? All this stuff is ugly and it never sells. How's he ha- wearing all these pinky rings? Well, that and lots of other things, which we will talk about next week. Yes. But part three is available right now on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders. Find us over there, support our podcast, get exclusive access or early access to part three right now. We love you. Uh, you know, 
How do they end the Academy Awards? I have no idea. I don't do know. they end I'm gonna, it? I'm going to play you off. <laughs> <laughs> From the bottom of our hearts, thank you so much for listening to Muriel's Murders. She did all the research, writing, and hosting. I did all the recording, editing, post-production, and uploading onto the internet. This podcast was recorded in our living room. To help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, you can sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders. Find us on social media at Murals Murders, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok. Our DMs are open. We'd like to follow you guys back best we can. We're not always amazing at staying up on our, uh, you know, correspondences, but please DM us, email us, muralsmurders at gmail.com. We absolutely love hearing from you. And, you know, if you have a second and you like the pod, you can rate and review us uh, on Apple Podcasts because, you know what? It does help us grow. Mm -hmm. And if you're listening on Spotify or any other place, you can rate us there or text this to your mom she'll love it <laughs> our music is by Mario Castellini find them at Castellini Beats on Instagram alright that's it we'll see you next week bye bye